Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, we're going to look at this first part, and then we're going to look at the expanded version in the book of Matthew with regard to the Lord's Prayer. But to begin, again, Jesus is praying. He was a man of prayer. It is extremely important that we constantly be on guard defending the deity of Jesus Christ. If I could choose two doctrines which must stand and which liberals will always attack first, it is the deity of Christ and then the doctrine of propitiation of Christ being our vicarious substitute of suffering the wrath of God and dying in our place. And we must defend those doctrines with our lives. But we must always remember that in defending Christ's deity, we must also realize that he was truly and fully man. And although there is a great mystery, and I don't want to get too close to the line and blend the two great doctrines, we must understand that he was a man and what he did, he did as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. There were manifestations of his deity, but never forget, he did what he did as the greater Adam who took our place and did what no man has ever done. And I think this is why we see him giving such prominence to prayer. To prayer. Now, I want you to think about this magnificent person for a moment. He was like us, but he was not like us. I was once witnessing to someone and they are part of a cult that could actually that actually believed that they could live years and years and years without sin. They simply redefined sin. And as I was talking to him, I couldn't get through. And so finally, I said to him this, I said, what do you suppose is the greatest sin a man could possibly commit? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, don't you think it would be violating the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, well, I suppose. I said, do you not realize that there has never been one moment in your life that you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? In fact, of the billions and billions of people who have walked this planet, now and throughout all of time, not one person in humanity ever for one second loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one. And yet Jesus Christ, there was never a second that he did not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was so superior to us. He's the majestic, the magnificent one. He's our elder brother that stands not just like Saul standing head and shoulders above anyone else in Israel. No, infinitely above all of us, even in his manhood. And yet look at what we see. 
drawing upon his Father in communion, depending upon the Holy Spirit, being guided by the Spirit, doing works in the power of the Holy Spirit, and arguing from the greater to the lesser. If this is the case with our Lord, how much more should it be our case? In talking about prayer, I, I didn't know where to go because there's so many places. I mean, I thought about actually just teaching on the Beatitudes. And you say, well, what do the Beatitudes have to do with prayer? Absolutely everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do, do you not realize that God's primary purpose Maybe the first step in all of sanctification is to weaken you. There's a song that I would always sing to my children when they were little. It was this. My child, I am weak and I'm trembling. For the Lord, I am always remembering. Oh, what a strong shepherd holds you in his arms. He will break you and make you. His own. I once met a man who had written a very, very special song, very unusual for our times, very Christ-centered. And I'd sung the song several times in my devotions for years, but I never met the man who wrote it. And one day I met him. He looked like a mosaic. He looked like somebody that you had broken apart with a hammer in thousands of pieces. And then somehow stitched back together. <clears throat> the Lord's hammer is very hard. It is very hard. But it is necessary. Now, I know that some of you may be thinking, oh, yes, yes, when we're in sin, the Lord must discipline us. No, 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 you're not understanding. I'm not saying as a result of some sin. I'm saying this is absolutely necessary to grow. He must wean us away from our, from our independence. He must weaken us. He must make us see. I used to tell young men, you know, you can't preach without the power of God. Now I realize I can't tie my shoes. No, I can't tie my shoes without him. I opened my eyes. I dare not move a quarter of an inch to the left or the right without crying out. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Nothing. 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 And I am convinced that all you, although you missed, you may theologically recognize the importance of prayer. You may sincerely and honestly recognize the importance of prayer. It is only as Years and years pass. You pass through the grinder and the hammer and the hard winds and the pains. And he weakens and weakens and weakens you. But then an amazing thing happens. 
You're nothing. And yet, it's so much easier to fill an empty glass than it is to fill a full one. The less of you, the more of him. Now, I'm sure that there are many that are far beyond me that could learn all these things without all the trials I've had to suffer. But they would be quite unusual. For those of you who are younger here, I would plead with you to understand yourself through the study of Scripture. Understand your weakness through the study of Scripture. And submit yourself to the hand of God and ask Him to do whatever is necessary to see that you are nothing without Him, that you can't breathe without Him. You'll only be a person of prayer when you see how needy you are. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished. One of his disciples said to him, after he had finished. I have been very privileged in my life not to have a great education or those types of things, but I have known men, secret men. If I mention their names, you might know some of them. There are men of prayer, men of the word, old school. And I can recall times when I would pray with them or they would pray with me that I would be afraid to look up. Or if you walked in on them and they were praying at that time, you backed out of the room, as I said last night. You knew they were dealing with God. And you knew that God was dealing with them. You could, you could just know it was different. This man has been with God. This woman has been with God. I, I think that they were as afraid to interrupt Christ here as when he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. They would just look, maybe speak silently one to another, but they dare not interrupt what they were saying. It was far too holy. Far too holy. Now, how, how, does, how is that accomplished in, in a man or a woman? Through praying. How do you learn to pray through praying? Through renewing your mind in the Word of God and praying. And over the years, not over the days, but over the years, your mind becomes more and more conformed to the will of God. And you become more intensely aware of the privilege that is yours. So that if someone asks you, have you ever been to the Holy Land? You simply tell them, I'm there every morning, every time I bow my knee. Do you not realize that you and I have been given an audience with God? We have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Me, 
infallible, little me. But I'm a child of God. I bow my knee and lift my face to pray. And angels must be silent because I have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. Pray, pray, pray. Read the word, pray. Read the word, pray. Meditate on the word, memorize the word. Read good books for men who love the word and pray. Hold both into your, in your hands. That it becomes a reality. And that the presence of God becomes a greater reality than the presence of the people in the room with you. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, this is very, very important. Why? Oftentimes, prayer is looked at as something mystical. And yet here I find the word teach. Teach. Teach us to pray. How do you learn to pray? I have found this terrible divide among the people of God. There are those who seem to pray a great deal and fall into mysticism. There are those who give themselves to the word of God and don't pray and fall into intellectualism. Academic. Now, I will tell you this in my experience in, in my 30 some years of preaching. I have found that we need to be careful because there are men that men and women that are exceptionally gifted in prayer. We shouldn't deny that. But those who are gifted in prayer should not let go of the word. And there are men who are not so much gifted in prayer, but they are gifted proclaimers of the word and both are necessary. And yet they must be careful that they give themselves to prayer. Do you see, we must always be careful. Our gifts are a wonderful thing, but they can make us awkward and off balance. For example, not all, not all have the gift of generosity, but all must give. Do you see? So teach us to pray. I, I cannot tell you that, you know, so many times we don't spend much time in the word and then we find a problem in our character and we try to attack it directly by, I don't know, finding some verses and making some sort of a concoction. But I've found that God really doesn't do sanctification in that way. That's why I'm always telling young men, they say, what should I do? What should I do? I said, do what almost no one does. They said, what's that? Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and then do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then what begins to happen? The entirety of your life begins to conform itself more and more to the image of Christ. You begin to develop, cultivate the mind of Christ. And that is absolutely necessary in prayer. You know, I made a, a remark that I hope was not taken as rude. I, 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 it has to be said, even though it's hard. Do, do you know that, that it would be good for some people not to preach? Do you realize that? 
No scripture says that. Not all of you be teachers. It would be good for some men. The best thing they could do would be to stop preaching. No, honestly, it's a fearful thing. It's true. Well, I want to tell you something else. For some, it would be best they stop praying. Now, I know that will anger some of you. But you see, it's not just preaching. It's preaching biblically. It's preaching biblical truth. It's not just praying. It's praying biblically. You can come into the presence of the Most High and say some very, very wrong things. And yes, He is merciful. That doesn't change the fact you have said some very, very wrong things before the Most High. Should one be afraid to preach? Absolutely. But to some degree, we should also be afraid to pray. Now, I want to balance that out. A new believer does not need to go out and read the Bible 600 times before he develops a prayer life. But all of us ought to realize that great humility should be required when we come into the presence of God. And number two, as the wisdom literature tells us, be careful with your words. You're not heard from much speaking. So think about what is about to be said to him. The fault of this primarily has to do with pastors because they do not teach people the fear of the Lord. Their preaching does not cultivate the fear of the Lord. Brothers, if you want to know what's wrong with the church, it's us. It's always us. If you want to know what's wrong with my family, it's me. It's not my wife. It's not my children. It's me. You see, authority is a wonderful and a terrible thing. The buck stops with you. When I hear pastors lamenting the state of the church, I'm thinking to myself, you ought to be lamenting your own state. You see, I've discovered this. A, a pastor who does not love the word is not going to have a congregation that loves the word. A pastor who does not pray is not going to have a praying congregation. A pastor who does not evangelize is not going to have a congregation that evangelizes. A pastor who does not walk in holiness is not going to have a holy church. He says, teach us to pray. Have you taught your people to pray? You want them to pray. You may exhort them to pray. But have you taught them to pray? And teaching them to pray includes more than prayer. They must have knowledge of the one to whom they're praying. And they must have knowledge of themselves through the scriptures and knowledge of what Christ has done for them. Do you see? The one thing about Christianity is if you touch one doctrine, you touch them all. That's why, again, if you're a pastor, expository preaching through books of the Bible are absolutely necessary because it's the only way you can touch all the doctrines that we need for a well-rounded Christian life. When, when, I, when my first child was born, I mean, I'm something of a perfectionist, so I was looking for every kind of discipleship material in the world to disciple my children. Catechisms, I looked at all of them. But every time I would find something good, I would find holes, find holes, find holes, and one day it just dawned on me. There's only one perfect book. 
And so I decided we will do line by line exposition from the time they're five years old until they leave my house. And we have. We have. Same way with the congregation. If you want them to be able to pray, you're going to have to teach them the Bible. As this disciple says, teach us to pray. Now, also, I want you to look at this. As John also taught his disciples, it seems that it was a practice among men of God throughout the history of Christianity to teach people how to pray. How much time have you spent teaching your congregations how to pray? Not just teaching on prayer, but teaching them how to pray. I remember when I was very, very young in the faith, I went to hear Leonard Ravenhill. And before he got up to preach, this uh, other preacher got up. And I suppose he was animated by the fact he was preaching with Leonard Ravenhill. And I mean, he, he scathed us. I mean, he tore us apart. His sermon was, you must walk in the Spirit. You must walk in the Spirit. And I mean, he went on for an hour and a half just literally tearing us apart for not walking in the Spirit. I walked up to him after the sermon... And I said, sir, I agree with everything you've said. I really do. And I want to walk in the spirit. But, but here's my problem. I don't know what that means. He turned around and started tearing into me. And fortunately, there was an older saint behind me. And he kind of took me by the shoulders and just moved me aside. And he came forward and he said, listen, preacher, the boy asked you a sincere question and you didn't answer him and you didn't answer him because I don't think you know how to answer him. You've been telling us to walk in the spirit and you yourself don't even know what it means. So you're not just supposed to tell preacher your congregation to pray. You're to teach them what it means. To tell them what it means. You see, and how do you do that? Line by line exposition of the passages of Scripture on prayer. Line by line exposition of passages of Scripture that teach them about the holiness of God. Line by line exposition of Scripture that teaches them about their place in Christ because of the majestic death that was accomplished on their behalf. Do you see? All begins with teaching, doesn't it? Now, I want us to go from here because he answers the question by giving us what has commonly been known as the Lord's Prayer. I prefer to call it the model prayer. Let's go to Matthew 6, where we have an extended uh, account of that prayer. I just, I'd like to teach on the whole chapter, but let's just back up from verse 9 and go to 8 for just a moment. Or let's go to 7. No, let's go to 6. No, let's go to 5. Now, 7, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Take this to heart. This is not just referring to the vain repetitions of Catholic prayers. 
I hear many a vain repetition before God by evangelicals. Be careful with your words. Think about what you're going to say. You're in the presence of the king. Verse 8. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. It seems that these vain repetitions in verse 7 have to do with there's doubt that the deity really understands your problem. And so you've got to keep talking to him over and over and explaining the situation. Now, here people say this, this seems to be an obstacle to prayer. If he already knows what I need before I ask him, then why ask him? This is simply an affirmation of the absolute sovereignty of God. His omniscience, he knows everything, he can do everything, rest. Now you have been commanded to ask because you have not because you ask not. He has so decreed that we ask of him. So that when he moves on our behalf, it leads to double praise. Not only has he done the thing, but he's done the thing graciously as a response to our petition. What you need to know is that when you come before God, if you know him, you know that he knows. He understands. You don't have to explain to him everything about your need. And you most certainly do not have to explain to him how he is to accomplish this thing. He knows. My mo I, I don't know how to say this. My, my greatest joy in times of terrible trial, my, my, my secure place, is in the night watch. You can't sleep. You get out of bed. I have this window. Just kneel in the dark. Sometime the light, the moon shining through the window. You're so anxious. You're so full of turmoil. There's so many problems, so many needs, so many things. And on your knees to look up and say, Nothing but this. You know. You know, Lord. You know. And with that, you can go back to sleep like a baby. Not much needs to be said when you know Him. The more I know Him, the less I have to say. It says, pray then in this way. I find this absolutely astounding. He's asked a direct question. Teach us to pray. He gives a direct answer. Okay. Pray then in this way. And yet, there's so little teaching on this. I mean, when he was asked, how do we pray? He said, OK, I'm going to tell you, do it this way. And it is almost completely ignored. 
I mean, I have learned from the prayers of, of Moses. I have learned from the prayers of Abraham. I have learned from the prayers of David and the psalmists. I have learned from Paul, especially Ephesians, Colossians. But now we're not talking about them. We're talking about the master. Someone went straight to the master and said, how should we pray? He said, pray then in this way. I think you need to learn this. Why have we so avoided it? I believe that it's been a reaction against the vain repetition of Roman Catholicism. You see, just count on it. If it's important, if it is important, the devil's going to go straight for it and he's going to twist it that quick. Well, he's twisted this for over 1,500 years. But we as evangelicals should never allow someone else to steal our inheritance. This belongs to us. Not to repeat vainly, but to learn from. Now, there's so much more I'd like to say, but time is leaving me. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. This is the perfect psychology of prayer. You couldn't do this any better. How should I approach Him? Our Father, who art in heaven. What does that mean? He is our Father. Now, don't go coming to me saying, yes, He's our Abba Father, He's our Daddy, and we call Him Daddy. No, we do not call Him Daddy, and that's not what that means. So stop saying those kind of things. That's not what it means. Abba Father was a term of endearment, yes, but it is not synonymous with our term Daddy. Because although it was a term of endearment, it all, always held with it the greatest respect and awe. You can see something like this in some places in Africa still, when a child will address their father. He may be a very good father. I know many great theologians and pastors in Africa who are loving fathers. And you will see their children address them. Father. But you'll also see them bow one knee and hold out the hand. They're endeared to their father and yet their father's their father. And they honor him with even the way they present themselves before him. So be careful of taking this and Americanizing it. It is such endearment and such love and such acceptance in Christ. Yes, God is our father. But never forget your father is the Lord of glory. And only fools rush in where angels fear to tread. It's a balance. Our Father, I come before you with, without an uncertainty, without fear of flaws in your character. And yet I come before you with the deepest, most solemn respect for who you are. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, these are three petitions, and yet 
They're more like, rather than seeing them as separate petitions, I would rather you see them as a hole that would be a diamond that as you turn it in different directions in the light, you see different reflections. These are like three reflections of a greater whole. Now, I want you to think about this in your own prayer life, but I also want you to think about this in congregational praying. This is to be the center of your prayer life. And this is to be the center of congregational praying. And here we see the very heart of Jesus Christ. What was his great desire? What was his great petition? What did he desire above everything else? Why did his heart beat? Why did he take another breath? What was the reason? Here it is. He lived He breathed, he died, that God's name might be hallowed, that God's kingdom might come, that God's will might be done. That must be the very core, the very center of all our praying. And you can only get there as a person, you can only get there as a congregation through the word of God, through the study and proclamation of the word, so that this stops being about you and me and it is all about him. And you can't get there apart from preaching and private study. This is what it's about. What does it mean? Again, each one of these phrases is a five day lecture. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? God is holy. I often ask uh, young people, uh, I'll say, what does it mean that God is holy? Well, he's without sin. What does it mean God is righteous? Well, he's without sin. So what's the difference between holiness and righteousness? Holiness is not primarily that God is without sin. That's a secondary idea. It's there. Oh, it's there. But holiness has to do with separation. And what that means is God is not like us, just bigger. There is not merely a quantitative difference between us and God. There is a qualitative difference. God is not in the same category with us or anyone else. He is esteemed separately. He is treated separately. Separate from everything, everyone, and above everything and everyone. That is why statements like God and country are absolutely foolish. Or God and king. God should never be put in a conjunctive relationship unless it is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is God. And what Christ is praying here, his greatest desire is that in all the earth, all its inhabitants would see God in that separate category above everything else and that there would be no competing loyalties. God would be God alone. Above all things. Esteemed above all things. Cherished and honored and loved above all. Completely separate in the hearts of men. Now, there's both an inward and an outward look at this. In a sense, for me to pray this, hallowed be your name, is also to make a commitment. Because I cannot think about God's name 
being treated in such a way in the world if it's not treated in such a way in me. And that's what Jesus is saying when he said, blessed are the pure in heart. He's not talking necessarily here about some washing to be made white. He's talking about a heart that has no mixture. I like to put it this way. He's talking about a heart with no competing loyalties. So when I'm crying out, hallowed be thy name, that your name be above all things and there be no competing loyalties, I'm first of all inward. God, let it be so in me. Let it be so in my wife. Let it be so in my children. Let it be so in my church and my brothers and sisters in Christ and my local church. Let it be so among your people. Let it be so among the nations. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Sometimes we, we confine the work of God to some, I don't know, some, some spiritual category and that's all. But you have to see everything, everything belongs to God. Rocks and trees and moles and molecules and, and fish and birds and whales and sharks and everything that dwells in the sea, everything that flies in the sky, everything that crawls upon the ground. Everything is his. As Abraham Kuyper said one time, when Jesus Christ returns, he will simply do this. He will stretch forth his hand and he will say, mine, 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 mine. So his kingdom come, what does it mean? There is a sense in which the church is an expression of his kingdom. As we obey the king and obey his will. But then that, that pertains to everything. Government. That government be an expression of his kingdom. That families be an expression of his kingdom. That finance and commerce and everything upon this earth be an expression of his kingdom, of his rule. There is nothing off limits to the sovereignty of God or his rule. And in every area of life, every area, including academics, it belongs to him. And every discipline of mathematics and physics and everything, everything belongs to him. I, I listened to a song years ago and I've never been able to find it, but Someone who was an engineer wrote a song about God, that he's the God of engineering. I thought it was the most amazing song because it said he was the God of wheels and cogs and just went on and on with design that all of it comes from him, is through him and comes back to him. Everything. You've got to stop seeing all this in some small, tiny spiritual category. Everything is his. And it should grieve us when we turn on the television set and we see that government is not submitted to God. We see that commerce is not submitted to God. We see that the whole world is not submitted to God. It ought to grieve us and cause us to hit our knees and cry out, Thy kingdom come. But his kingdom will not come through politics. 
His kingdom will not come from some silly construct of social justice. His kingdom will come through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his reign. And his kingdom will only be manifested as men are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God and become new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. But we as Americans, we always see that as, yes, I'm a new creature. But if you really look at the text carefully, see that much more is being said. There's no verb there. If any man be in Christ, new creation. What it's saying is this. The moment a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, repents and believes, they've not only become, in a sense, a new creation, they have entered into the new realm. This is the beginning of the new creation which God will bring to its perfection at the second coming of Christ, the resurrection from the dead and the new heaven and the new earth. It has already started. This utopia that everyone is looking for, this beautiful Beulah land that everyone longs for, it begins the moment that someone is converted, having been regenerated by the Spirit of God, and that will only occur, again, not through politic or social construct, but through men who preach the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. How does this kingdom advance? No theonomy here. We're not going to be talking about silly things of taking over governments or marching in the streets. His kingdom advances through preachers of the gospel. He goes, your will be done. And that is a manifestation of the advance of the kingdom. This is where it is proved. You can talk all day about the kingdom, your love for the kingdom, your participation in the kingdom, but your words will be proven true or false by your submission to the will of God. The full counsel of God. The full counsel of God. Every letter, every jot and every tittle properly interpreted. There's so much silliness today. I, I, sometimes I'm, I'm, if I'm preaching in the Old Testament or I'm preaching in Proverbs or I'm preaching about the law of God, I have so many objections. We're not under the law. We're not under this. We're not under that. And I go, hold, stop. What are you trying to tell me? My justification is not through my obedience to the law. But if the law, the full counsel of God, Old and New Testament, are still not for me today, then I have to rip out most of the book of Psalms that is constantly saying how precious and delightful is the law of God. Now, I will admit that there are many legalists who take those laws and misinterpret them. Do not interpret them in light of the gospel. And yet I want you to understand something. If you do not love the law of God, the word of God, every part of it, there's something terribly wrong with your so-called profession of faith. The law is only against me when I am against Christ. The law is only an enemy to me when I try to justify myself through it. 
But the law and the wisdom and the precepts of the Old and New Testament are a guide and they are precious to me. And so, this is how a church prays. Now, let me say something really. I've got three minutes. Let me finish this. Look at this. Give us this day our daily bread. What's going on here? You cannot separate verse 11 from verses 9 and 10. Why is that important? 9 and 10, as many preachers have pointed out. This is, this is like, this, this is the prayer of a soldier. This is the prayer of a laborer. This is the prayer of someone who has given themselves to the work of the gospel, the work of the kingdom. So when you get to verse 11, it's basically saying this, give me not bread or do not meet my needs independent of verse 9 and 10. But what it is saying is this, I am utterly and totally committed as an individual. We are utterly and totally committed as a church to give our lives to the advancement of the kingdom, the glory of God, the hallowing of his name, the doing of his will. But we need sustenance. Give us only those things that are necessary for us to carry out the work. Do you see that? But that's not prayed in churches today. And see, it affects absolutely everything. And I would like to go on because you can't advance the kingdom in verse 12 without being united with your brothers. You can't advance the kingdom, verse 13, without being holy. But here's what I want you to say. With regard to the material in church life, in my life, in all our lives. Lord, let me just use a very personal illustration. For years and years of my life, I have struggled with chronic pain. It's, it's horrific. How should I pray? Lord, heal me. It's not enough. How shall I pray? Lord, if by healing me, your kingdom will advance more greatly, your will will be more keenly accomplished, and your name will be hallowed and esteemed Heal me. But Lord, if through this pain you are more hallowed, your will is more keenly accomplished and your kingdom is more greatly advanced, then leave me as I am. Yea, even take my life. But let your kingdom come. In the wisdom of God, how much foolishness, how much sin, how much danger have I avoided because of pain? How limited my entertainments have become. Do you not see? This is not about your best life now. 
It's about the advancement of the kingdom. This is how we are to pray. This is how churches are to pray. Let's pray. Father, oh Father, take what is yours from this and carry it on the wind like seed Plant it where it should be planted. Water it as it should be watered. And then when it grows, let all say, what happened? From where did this come? Whatever is not good and perfect and acceptable, bury it here. Oh God, help us to pray. In Jesus' name.